0: You would please stand with me for the reading of today's text. We are in Ezra chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 6 through 17, Ezra chapter 5, verses 6 through 17. A copy of the letter that Tetnai, governor on this side of the river, and Shethar uh, Bosni and his companion, the Arphasekites, which were on this side of the river, sent unto Darius the king. They sent a letter unto him, wherein was written thus, unto Darius the king, all peace. Be it known unto the king that we went into the province of Judea, to the house of the great God, which is builded with great stones, and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goes fast on. And prospereth in their hands then asked we those elders and said unto them thus who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls we asked their names also to certify thee that we might write the names of the men that were the chief of them and thus they returned us answer saying we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and build the house that was builded these many years ago, which a a great king of Israel builded and set up. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven unto wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. In the first year of Cyrus the king, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. And the vessels also of gold and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem, and brought them into the temple of Babylon. Thus did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered unto one whose name was Sheshbazzar, whom he had made governor, and said unto him, Take these vessels, go carry them into the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be builded in his place. Then came the same sheshbazzar and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And since that time until now, hath it been in building, and yet it is not finished. Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so, that a decree was made by Cyrus the king to build the house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful this morning to be in your presence, to be gathered in your house, to be called by your name, to be your people, and to stand before your holy word. Lord, we pray today that you will bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that we will learn its simple truths, that we will embrace them, that we will profess them and confess them, and that has been prayed earlier, Lord, that we will be changed, and that we will be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that these things will be so. Amen. You may be seated. We find the Israelites in a tough spot. They have responded to the Lord in faith and they have provoked the local civil authorities. They have brought on by their actions a confrontation. These civil authorities have come to them and they have asked them what they are doing and what are their names. They are going to report this information to the king. And both the Israelites and the civil authorities know that the goal here is to shut them down. To get them to quit working. To block the completion of the temple in Jerusalem. I think it would be easy for us to read over this section that we've heard this morning as, oh, this is this is the official report from Tatnai to the king. Not much here, just some details of what is going on. But I believe if we take a deeper look, if we stop and we ponder, that we will find some real gems here that we can hold up to the light of God's truth, that we can view through the lens of His Word, and we can see just what a faithful response the returned exiles have given. These returned exiles, I believe, have responded in faith. They have gone through trials and tribulations, and they have largely failed. They have by faith begun again to work on the temple through the work of the prophets that the Lord graciously sent them through the word which they have spoken, the prophets have spoken to the people, and with, I think I've said in the past, with a fresh wind of the Spirit in their sails. My prayer this morning is that our Heavenly Father would hear His beloved children respond in the same manner. That we too would be made alive by the work of the Spirit. That we would be renewed. That we would be refreshed. That we would be washed in the pure water of the Word. That we would hear the voice of our Lord through the voice of the prophets. The Israelites here are being confronted by the civil authorities. They are also having to face their own flesh, their own sin. They may be discouraged. They may be down. But what remains, what it has been boiled down to, is their response to the questions, who are you? And what are you doing? See, in verse 11 we find their response. They speak in one voice. And their response is this, they say, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's pretty simple. Who are you And what are you doing? The response to what are you doing comes later, and we will get to that in another sermon. But today we are going to focus on who they are. It is interesting to note that in the official communication from the governor to the king, there are no names listed. The only response that they could have received is, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And I am going to make the argument this morning that this is the right response regardless of the trouble. Whether it be the civil authorities meddling in the business of the church, the trials and the tribulation that we face in the church, the difficulties and the pain that we suffer when relationships go sideways. Or maybe, as I believed happened to the Israelites earlier, maybe you're suffering a crisis of faith. I contend that this is still the right response. This is where we begin. We like to overcomplicate things, don't we? We reformed types. We homeschoolers. We hyphen Christians, whatever you want to put in front of the hyphen. We tend to want to rely on that particular characteristic or identity. We want to rely on the system. We want to rely on our own intelligence. On our own spiritual maturity. On our own good looks and great people skills. But there is only one response when we need comfort, when we need solutions, when we need answers, when we are hurting, there's only one place to go. See, to begin to make this confession, for them to have come to this understanding, I believe they first must have come to grips With the fact that confronted with their failure of faith. Confronted with their history of sin. Confronted with their own shortcomings. Like you and I, when we come face to face with Jesus Christ Himself. When we are asked the question, who is Jesus. We, like Peter, can only have one response. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Peter gets to this point, Jesus responds and says, You have answered. Well, my friend, this is the foundation. This is the bedrock. This is, as Peter would say, this is the chief cornerstone. This is where Jesus builds his church. And we are told in that passage in Matthew that the gates of hell are, shall not prevail against it. This is where we begin. This is where I believe the Israelites begin after dealing with their failures, after once again beginning the work and being confronted by the authorities. Oh no, here we go again. They boil it down and say, we are the servants Of the God of heaven and earth. We have nothing else. We have nothing else left. We see this example in the Israelites in our passage. We have seen this example in the book of Acts. When the apostles are teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus and they are thrown in jail. They are brought before the council again, and the high priest asks them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man, Jesus' blood, upon us. Again, here we go. Oh no. We are being confronted again. We are being persecuted again for our beliefs. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. This is the response of the Israelites here. They have seen their failures, they are up against it again. Lord, we. we We started working again earnestly. And we are being confronted again. But they gathered it together, didn't they? And they said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We must obey God rather than men. We must fear God more than we fear Men. And the passage tells us earlier that they could not be caused to cease from their work. They had gotten to the point where they had nothing else to lose. They had gotten to the point where they were ashamed of everything that they had done, they were ashamed of everything. Except their Lord. except the God who had called them to this work. As we read earlier in Matthew 10, "...whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. And whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven." Paul says it this way For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Do you see this? The returned exiles had nothing left. They had tried to accomplish this work in their own strength and had failed. They are brought to the point where they realize the only thing they have left is a faith in a faithful God. They are appealing to Him for their salvation. They are appealing to Him As the one who can solve the issue for them. You see, as the servants, as the ones who are owned, or the ones who are in service to their Lord, all they have left is worshiping Him. All they have left is crying out in His name. They've been brought to the point where they realize that the only hope that they have in this world was in the God of heaven and earth. I argue that we find ourselves in a similar position. All of us have tried to accomplish various tasks in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own understanding. And have made a mess of things. We are told right up front that when when we were without Christ... That we were without hope. There were no promises extended to us. We were without God in the world. He was not on our side. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. We were sometimes aliens and enemies. But Jesus brought us near. Later in Ephesians, it tells us that now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the God of heaven and earth, We are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophet, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Do you see this? We do not build this house in our own strength. The Israelites tried that. And they failed. When we try to do it in our own strength, we fail. I want to encourage you to remember who you are. When the trials and the tribulations come, remember that you have Christ. That you are in Christ. Does that make sense? It is not you that the world attacks, it is not you that the world comes against. It is not the civil authorities that are coming after you. Because you, you are dead. And it is Christ that lives in you. Our hope of glory. As we consider what Jesus has done for us, when we consider that He has taken us from outside the commonwealth of Israel, and placed us as fellow citizens with the saints. That as the Israelites have responded that we are servants, that we are slaves to the God of heaven and earth, this is true for us. But as those who live on this side of the cross, these truths and realities have been expanded for us they have been broadened for us let me give you some examples so we start off by saying we have been uh, freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus hallelujah that therefore now is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You get this? You have been freely justified, and there is now no condemnation. That's pretty good work for a slave, right? That's a pretty good status. But it's much bigger than that. Uh, Romans 8. For as many... "...are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God." And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You see this? You have been redeemed. You have been purchased by Christ, which makes you a servant and a slave. But you have been given God's Spirit. And through this, you have been adopted. And we get to say, Papa. We get to say, Father. We are the children of God. And it says that we are heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. And that we will be glorified together with Him. Paul says in Galatians, Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So he goes way back to the promises made by Abraham. We've talked about this, right? That Abraham's descendants were going to be a blessing to all the nations. When we get to the point where we realize we have nothing to offer except our status in Christ to be a blessing to the nations, we can begin to get something done. Does that make sense? I don't see any heads nodding. In that same passage, it continues, it says, Wherefore, because we've been adopted as sons, because we get to cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father, we get to say, You are our Papa. We sit on his knee. It is an amazing picture. Anyway, it says, Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. You are a child of, God. So we have this status as a servant and as a slave. If you read through the Old Testament law, those status were pretty good. There were rules around our treatment. It was not what we think of as chattel slavery. This was a, uh, a family relationship. When you were brought in as a slave into somebody's family, you were you were part of that family. You were circumcised into this covenant with the God that these families were obeying. It was not just some piece of property that you put in a pen out in the barnyard. So then it tells us that we are not only servants, but that we are also children. And that we are heirs according to the promise. We inherit all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. All spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You currently possess that. And there's more to come. But it doesn't stop there. See, in John 15, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, Henceforth I call you not servants. You know this passage, right? For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. Jesus says that we are friends because he has shared with us what the Father has told him. And it doesn't stop there either, does it? In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he has espoused us to one husband. In Romans, he says, Paul says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. How is this even possible? This is absolutely stunning. We talk about this a lot, and I don't think it sinks in. Okay? We had nothing to offer except our sin, except our rebellion, except our shaking our fists and hating God. And how does He respond to us? He purchases us. He redeems us. He pays the price for all of our sins. And He adopts us as His children. And He befriends us. And He marries us as His bride. His beloved bride. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. So now that we've talked a little bit about who we are, let's look at the rest of this phrase and talk about the God of heaven and earth. Who is it that we serve? Who is this king to which we labor. When we look at the phrase, the God of heaven and earth, the first thing we have to think of is God the Creator. In the beginning we had God and there was no heaven and earth. So this God of heaven and earth is surely that creator God. For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist." Please don't tweet that Elder Evans said "invisible." okay? Just don't do that. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him... Was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God who created all things. This is the God who maintains and sustains all things. equally difficult to get your brain wrapped around. How is it possible that this God can create and maintain and sustain all that is going on in the simplest of organisms? Down to the atomic level. He also... Creates, maintains, also created and maintains and sustains the uncountable galaxies. Most of us multitask poorly, but God, in His infinite wisdom and power, and in His absolute sovereignty, over all of his creation, is able to do that. It is this God who is able to do that, who is able to maintain that creation and also love us. Staggering. So this God of heaven and earth is our creator God. And because He is the creator that makes Him sovereign. And He is sovereign over everything as we have been discussing. There is nothing outside of His sovereignty. That is a phrase that goes beyond our comprehension. But we do know this about his sovereignty. We know that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scriptures say, "...whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Or whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Paul continues in Romans saying, "...for this, to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living." There's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Are you getting the picture here? When we come up against the trials and the tribulations, when we come to realize that in our own strength, in our own wisdom, we are going to fail. And when we get tired of failing, we come to that place where we say, Lord Jesus, creator of heaven and earth, sovereign over everything, save me. Save me, even from myself. And this is the God of heaven and earth. He is our creator. He is our sovereign. And brothers and sisters, He is our Savior. When He came to earth, when He took on flesh, the angel came and said to his folks, Fear not. For that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth, who created all things, who is sovereign over all things, and took on flesh for you and for me, came to earth to save us from our sins. To pay the penalty due for your sins and for my sins. There is salvation by no other name. This is it. This is where the Israelites got. The Lord brought them to this point. He said, look, I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. I was fulfilling the promises to Abraham. I delivered you out of Egypt by many, many signs and wonders. How could you miss this? He brought them into the land, defeated their enemies, established a glorious kingdom. And the Israelites, in their response, went worshiping other gods. He then takes them off to a foreign land and makes them serve a pagan king. But He doesn't leave them there, does He? No, He forgives their sins. He makes the pagan king let them go. Sustains them on their journey back to Jerusalem. Gives them a go at rebuilding the temple in which they fail. And then through His grace and His mercy, He sends His prophets. And His prophets speak the word of the Lord to them. And the Spirit comes. And the people are revived. And they go back to work. Except this time. This time they know that they can't do it in their flesh. They can't do it without the Lord. So when they are confronted, when they face the difficulty again of opposition, they turn their face towards heaven and they say, Lord, we are your servants. That's all we have. You have to save us. The Psalms we sang today and many others are full of this. Jesus is Our high tower. He is our hiding place. He is our strong defense. He is the hill to which we run for help. He created us. He sustains us. He redeemed us. He will never leave us or forsake us. You see, it doesn't matter what kind of trouble you're in right now. There's only one answer. No matter what problem you are facing, no matter what difficulty you find yourself in, whether if somebody else's making or your own, the answer is the same. And the answer isn't Jesus. Right? Now everybody's confused. The answer is are you in Christ Jesus? Jesus isn't the solution to the problems for the unbelievers. Now is he? He is their problem. Regardless of your trouble, regardless of your difficulty, You are in Christ. And there is your hope. And if you don't start there, you will continue to struggle in those difficulties. And if you don't acknowledge that He is the only solution, you will fail again. So brothers and sisters, my word to you today is, Be in Christ. Do you get this? Dwell in Him. Abide in Him. He is your only hope. You know this, right? But we're really bad at it. You don't think we're really bad at it? Let me lay it out like this. We are told to have faith like a child. Right? I read earlier, we're adopted as God's children. He is our papa, he's our father, and we are his children. And how do we come to God? We come to God like we've got it all together. Like we've got it all figured out. Like he doesn't know. How many things can we deny there? How do children come to their parents? Do they come having everything all figured out? Do they come with these great comments, beautifully written sentences, grammars correct? Moms, you know better, right? Grammar? Children just blurt out stuff, don't they? Sometimes they're just flat rude. Do you know what? It's because they have faith, like a child, that you can fix it. We get in our prayer closet, we have our list in front of us. We're going to approach God, right? How long does that last for you? Who here goes more than 30 or 45 seconds before they're thinking about the troubles of the day? I won't make you raise your hands. How do children come to their parents? It's come blown in the room, right? Dad, I broke this thing, can you fix it? That's what it means to be a child of God. That's what it means to approach Him like a child. You are dead. Stop acting like you have it all together. You are no more. It is Christ that dwells in you. This is the intimate relationship you have with God. Do you understand this? When it says pray without ceasing, do you understand that? That's how children approach their father constantly, incessantly, unrelenting. Dad, 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 dad. Except our Father isn't like us, is He? We don't have our face in Facebook. I will not belabor the point here. You are servants of the God of heaven and earth. It's really quite simple. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Seek them there. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Seek them there. It says right here in my Bible, you are dead. Your life is hid with Christ and God. You are in Christ. Seek Him. Let's pray. Father, there have been many times we have come to you and asked you to give us faith to help us in our unbelief. Father, we come today knowing that we are unworthy servants, that we have not responded to you as your children, as to a father. We have not responded as your friend. We have not brought our cares and our concerns and our difficulties and our trials and our tribulations to you first and foremost. We have tried to muscle out the solutions through our own strength. Father, we pray that you will forgive us. We pray that you will give us faith, that you will give us the faith of a child that we can come to you undone, unkept, having broken something again, knowing that you are our good Father and that you desire to fix it. Father, let us approach all of our difficulties. Let us approach the difficult times and the good times, knowing that we are yours, and that you are the God of heaven and earth, and that we can seek you. Father, help us to believe these promises. In Jesus' name. Amen.